Well, we finally made it to the good news. The passage that we're looking at this morning is one of the most foundational in the entire Bible. In the margin of Martin Luther's personal Bible, beside this great passage, is Luther's notation saying that Romans chapter 3, verses 21 to 26, is, quote, the chief point and the very central place of the epistle and of the whole Bible, close quote. It is in these verses that we find the very heart of the best news of all time, the greatest news in the universe. I want to read the passage, uh, and then we will examine it. Chapter 3 of Romans, starting in verse 21. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. This was to demonstrate His righteousness, because in the forbearance of God He passed over the sins previously committed. For the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time, that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In this one brief passage of six verses, we find many of the great themes that pervade the Scriptures from beginning to end. Sin, righteousness, law, justice, justification, redemption, glory, propitiation, and faith. (laughs) And we see all of these timeless realities come sharply into focus in one historical event, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Now, in the previous several weeks that we've been examining Romans, starting in in the section from 118 all the way through 320, we've seen the bad news. uh, God's indictment of all of mankind. We've seen his uncompromising declaration through the Apostle Paul that there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who seeks after God. There is no one good, not even one. The starting point for every human being is as the object of God's wrath. In fact, the only way in which the righteousness of God is manifested or displayed toward us, apart from Christ, is in the form of God's righteous wrath, His judgment, that's due to us because of our sin. But with the words, but now, at the beginning of verse 21, Paul shifts his argument from the bad news to the good news. This morning, this is where we're going to go. 
we're going to see first that God's righteousness has now been manifested in a new way. Not only through His righteous judgment against men's sin, but in a miraculously positive way that was foretold in the Old Testament and perfectly fulfilled in Jesus Christ. We'll then see that this new manifestation of God's righteousness applies in two directions, manward and Godward. First, in verses 22 to 24, His righteousness has been given to men and manifested in men. Then in verse 25, we'll see that His righteousness is satisfied in Jesus Christ. And finally, we'll see that the marvelous outcome of this new outworking of God's righteousness is that God is shown to be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. And we saw in chapter 1 several weeks ago that the central theme of this marvelous epistle is the righteousness of God manifested or revealed in the gospel of God, which is the message concerning His Son, Jesus. Today's passage is entirely in keeping with that very theme. In Romans 3, verses 21 to 26, the phrases, the righteousness of God or His righteousness occur four times. And each of those four times, the issue is the manifestation or demonstration of that righteousness. What does righteousness mean? Well, it, it means hitting the mark. It means upright, innocent, good. In context, speaking of judgment, it's often used synonymously with the word justice. That is, sound or upright judgment. That which is righteous is that which is in keeping with the truest standard of goodness, correctness, and justness. Throughout the Bible, to say that God is righteous is to say in the simplest terms that He meets the standard of His own character and His own nature. Now, if that seems like circular reasoning, that's okay. It's supposed to be. In Matthew 5.48, concluding his very unsettling words about the kind of righteousness that God requires, Jesus said, therefore you are to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. The whole point of everything the Bible says about righteousness is that God is the one and only standard by which men are measured. And that will be very important to Paul's argument in this passage. The words, but now at the beginning of 321, are powerful beyond our comprehension. Martin Lloyd-Jones said, there are no more wonderful words in the whole of Scripture than just these two words, but now. I love that quote. (laughs) These two words mark not only the critical shift in Paul's argument from the bad news to the good, but the declaration that in Christ... God's righteousness has now been manifested more fully than it was ever manifested before. The mystery of the ages foretold by the prophets has been unveiled in Christ. Now, some commentators say that the words, but now, mark a logical transition, but not a temporal or time transition. What that means is they say that Paul is not talking about something new. He's just moving to the next phase of his argument. I believe 
the fact that there's a very important time element in these two words becomes visibly manifest in verses 25 and 26 when Paul speaks of the demonstration of God's righteousness at the present time. This is a new manifestation, a new re- uh, demonstration of the righteousness of God as of the point in history marked by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Which, by the way, is where Paul started this epistle in chapter 1, verse 4. Right after the words, but now, Paul says, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested. He places that phrase, apart from the law, very strategically and very deliberately at the beginning of this verse. He is clearly emphasizing this phrase, apart from the law. And these words draw our attention back to what he's just been talking about in the preceding verses. He just finished saying at the end of chapter 3, verses 19 and 20, that the true purpose of the law was not to justify men in the eyes of God, right? Quite the opposite. The purpose and impact of the law is to leave every man speechless before God, having absolutely no defense for his utter failure to comply with the righteous standard of God's own character. Paul concluded that indictment from 118 to 320 with these two verses. He said, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who were under the law, that every mouth may be closed and every, and, and all the world may become accountable to God. Because by the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So when Paul begins that very next verse, verse 21, by saying, now apart from the law, he is introducing the cure to the catastrophic problem that the law purposed to expose. His point here is not that the law of Moses contradicts or stands in opposition to the means of justification that comes through Jesus Christ. His point is that the righteousness of God, the only righteousness God cares anything about, can never be true of men on the basis of law-keeping. That's not why God gave us the law in the first place. The law is preparation for the gospel of Christ. As Paul says in Galatians 2, it's a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. The law uncompromisingly points out man's desperate need for a righteousness that can never come about through law-keeping. Now, what does it mean here that the righteousness of God has been manifested? Um, The word manifested simply means made visible or revealed. Again, as we saw in the very first message of this series, The heart of the gospel and of this epistle is the righteousness of God unveiled, revealed. And in 117, we saw that his righteousness is revealed from one instance of faith to the next. We receive Christ by faith, we walk in Christ by faith, and at every point in which we place our faith in the promise of God, he manifests his righteousness. And we'll see more about this new manifestation of God's righteousness shortly. He goes on to say, 
at the end of verse 21 that this new manifestation of God's righteousness was witnessed by the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets is a Hebrew way of saying the Old Testament. God's righteousness has been manifested in Christ apart from the law, but not apart from the Old Testament. It's noteworthy that in the first two verses of this great epistle, as Paul was introducing himself in chapter 1 and introducing the theme of the book, he said that he, Paul, was set apart for the gospel of God, which God promised beforehand through the prophets in the Holy Scriptures. As we studied, uh, when we examined the old covenants, particularly the new covenant, the promise that God would make his people truly righteous, indeed that he would give his righteousness to his people, is a very old promise. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses said, Moreover, the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your descendants to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul in order that you may live. Now, who's the active agent in that transaction? It's God. Verse 8, You shall turn and obey the Lord and observe all His commandments. That's a prophecy. This will happen, which I command you today. God's saying, your hearts will be turned. And they will be turned by God. Jeremiah chapter 31, very powerful passage of the new covenant, about the new covenant. Behold, days are coming, declares Yahweh, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And among the among the promises in that covenant is the one highlighted here. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they will be my people. Ezekiel 36, another passage about the new covenant. God says, then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And look at whose spirit it is. And I will put my spirit within you. And I will cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Who is the active agent in every part of that promise? It's God. And you will be my people and I will be your God. All of these passages talk about God doing a miraculous work in the hearts of His chosen people. And in every case, the change that He makes in the hearts of men is His doing. This morning, someone, uh, David read in first 1 Corinthians, the last couple of verses. For by His doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who has become for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. That as it is written, let him who boasts, boasts in the Lord. There's no place to boast in men when men have nothing to do with this. Right? All right. I said before that there are two 
directions or ways in which the righteousness of God is manifested according to this passage. Manward and Godward. First in verses 22 to 24, we see that God's righteousness is given to men. Through faith in Jesus Christ, for all who believe, as a free gift by His grace, and through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 25, we see the Godward aspect, that God's righteousness is satisfied in Christ. First, verses 22 to 24. According to verse 22, the righteousness that, that has, the, the righteousness of God, very important, that has now been manifested is that which comes to men through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in recent years, uh, a number of very able commentators have proposed that the Greek here should be translated through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ or even through the faith of Jesus Christ rather than through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they're not saying that we don't have to have faith in Christ, but they're saying that's how these, these words should be rendered. Uh, while I respect my brothers who hold to that translation, I'm compelled to go with the long-standing traditional rendering of this important phrase as through faith in Jesus Christ, not because it's long-standing or traditional, but because I'm convinced that the context of this passage and of this book demands it. Throughout this, his epistles, when Paul uses the word faith, he's not talking about the work of Jesus to make men righteous. He's talking about the response of men to that work. A response which itself is a work of God in the hearts of his elect. Paul forcefully and repeatedly makes the point throughout this section of Romans and throughout the entire epistle that the one and only way that men come to meet God's standard of righteousness is by believing in Jesus Christ. The object of men's faith is the person and work of Christ. The fact that it is by faith in the promise of God and not by law-keeping that we are saved is the core theme of the next chapter, chapter 4. Now, I want to point out that later in chapter 5, Paul will have a lot to say about the uniquely effective work of Jesus Christ in accomplishing our salvation. But when he does, he doesn't talk about the faith of Christ or even the faithfulness of Christ. He uses terms like Christ's one act of righteousness. And he speaks of the obedience of the one that brings about the salvation of the many. Paul's repeated declaration in this epistle is that God's righteousness is given to men through faith in Jesus Christ. That is, by trusting in who He is and what He accomplished at the cross. Now that in no way turns the focus to men. In all respects, the gift of God's righteousness is a gracious and unmerited work of God. Indeed, even the faith by which we lay hold of that gift is a gift from God. Immediately after Paul says that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ, he says it is for all those who believe. Now that's not redundant. <laughs> He's using, he used similar wording in his initial statement of the gospel back in Chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, when he said, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The righteousness of God comes to men through faith in Jesus Christ 
And it comes to all men who place their faith in Jesus Christ, not just the Son. Paul continues the same idea in the phrase, for there is no distinction at the end of verse 22. Uh, he uses that exact same phrase, exact, in Romans 10, where he is once again talking about the fact that salvation is given to everyone who believes. And there he says, for the Scripture says, whoever believes in Him will not be disappointed. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who call upon Him. For whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He says it in three ways in those few verses. Whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. So when Paul says, for there is no distinction, uh, when you look at Romans 10, and when you look at the chapters that we've been looking at for the last few weeks, it's clear that he has in his mind the perceived distinction between Jews and Gentiles. A perceived distinction that's not real in the mind of God when it comes to the gift of God's righteousness. Uh, but he's not limiting the possible distinctions that men might propose only to that which was perceived to exist between Jews and Gentiles. In Galatians chapter 3, he says, verses 26 to 29, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. The righteousness of God is given to whoever believes in Jesus Christ. The gift of God's righteousness is not just to Jews, but also to Gentiles. Not just to those who have the law, also to those who do not. It's not just to men, but also to women. Not just to free men, but also to slaves. It is to whoever believes in Jesus Christ. There is no distinction. In Romans 3.23, I'll bet you there's a bunch of you here who know that, that verse by heart. Especially kids who've been through Awana or eCare. Verse 23 is one of the most well-known verses in the Bible among evangelical Christians. But interestingly, it is included by Paul here to clarify why all who believe in Jesus Christ, all who believe in Jesus Christ, are made righteous without distinction. It's here to fortify the declaration in verse 22. See, what he's saying is, in the previous passages, God has made it crystal clear that nobody's righteous. That there is no one who meets up to the standard required by God. And that we all deserve only one thing, condemnation. In light of that universal indictment by God, no man has any advantage with God when it comes to the gift of His righteousness. We all deserve the same thing. H-E double hockey sticks. And that would be the end of the story 
if the story were only about what we deserve. But thanks be to God, the marvelous reality that Paul's talking about here is the story of redemption in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Verse 24 amplifies Paul's declaration of how we receive the righteousness of God. He already said that it's through faith in Jesus Christ. Now he adds, being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now the word justified is tied to the word righteous because the word justified means declared righteous. It's a legal term. It means we are no longer held accountable for the debt to God that our sin has caused. Paul presents a vivid picture. I think it's an amazing picture in Colossians chapter 2 of what justification looks like. He says, When you were dead in your transgression and the uncircumcision of your flesh, He, God, made you alive together with Christ, with Him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. And then look at this. He says, Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us and which was hostile toward us. And He has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. The debt that we owe to God because of our sins is canceled and we are declared justified, righteous in the eyes of God. Paul's wording here in 324 is very deliberate. It's very important. (laughs) He doesn't start a new sentence to say that we are justified freely by the grace of God. Of course, Paul, Paul rarely starts a new sentence, right? He makes this statement dependent on what he just said in verse 23. Because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, then the only means for men to be justified in the eyes of God is freely as a gift. By God's grace. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now this must be understood in light again of all that Paul has said in the, in the preceding passages. Since 118, where he started talking about the universal corruption and condemnation of men. Because there is not even one who is righteous, because there is no one good, because that is God's assessment of every man in every age, then it is necessarily true that the one and only way a man can stand justified, cleared of the debt of his sin in the eyes of God, is as a gift by His grace. That's the only the only path given to men to be righteous in God's eyes. You will never justify yourself in the eyes of God. Unless God does it for you, it will not happen. If you do not humbly accept both of these propositions, the fact of your utter lostness and condemnation in the eyes of God, and the fact of the absolutely free, undeserved gift of God's righteousness given to you through faith in Jesus Christ, then you will die in your sins and you will be eternally condemned. You cannot put your own qualifications or exceptions on either of those declarations because they are both absolute. And they must be accepted on God's terms, not on ours. We are eternally lost and dead apart from Jesus Christ. 
and we are made absolutely righteous and eternally saved in Jesus Christ. Purely as an undeserved gift. If you humbly accept both of those realities, you will be forever declared righteous in the eyes of God, having God's own righteousness eternally credited to your account. What a deal. No, it's not a deal at all. It's a gift. And there is no other way. The word grace implies the absence of merit. So the phrase freely by His grace in verse 24, or as some versions render it, as a gift by His grace, it's deliberately redundant and emphatic on Paul's part. If it's by God's grace, it can't be anything but free. It cannot be about what we have earned. God's grace is God giving us something that we don't deserve, something good that we don't deserve. And of course, that's exactly what God did for us in Jesus Christ. He gave us His own righteousness in place of our depravity. He gave us eternal life when we deserved only eternal death. And this justification, this gift of righteousness, again, comes to us only one way. Through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. Now, redemption is a very powerful word. There's several powerful words in this passage. In the culture of Paul's day, slavery was a very real issue for many. Let's say you were sold into slavery to a wealthy landowner to pay off a debt that your family owed to that, your poor family owed to that landowner. The only way out of that slavery is if someone in your family came into enough money to buy you back. In effect, to pay the debt that put you into slavery in the first place. The act of buying a person out of slavery was called redemption. In Romans 3.9, Paul said, both Jews and Greeks are all under sin. The idea was that we're all enslaved to sin. Not only enslaved to the penalty of sin, but enslaved to the power that sin has over us, to the hold that sin has over our lives. Apart from Christ, we cannot choose to become anything other than sinners. The best we can do is shuffle the deck around. In Romans 6, Paul will talk in great depth about the freedom that we have in Christ from that slavery to sin. In 6.18, he says, Having been freed from from sin, you became slaves to righteousness. The redemption which is in Christ Jesus is God's purchase of us out of slavery to sin, to the penalty and power of sin, in order that we may become bondservants of God. I said before that in this passage, God's righteousness is manifested again in two ways, or two directions, manward and Godward. In verse 25, Paul's focus turns from the manward aspect to the Godward aspect. He just said that we are justified as a gift by God's grace through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus. And now in verse 25, he says, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in His blood through faith. The word propitiation is another beautiful and powerful word. 
It's the same word used in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for the mercy seat that covered the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle. The Ark of the Covenant sat in the Holy of Holies, the innermost room of the tabernacle that was associated with the very presence of God dwelling in the midst of His people. It was the central point of the entire camp of Israel. Only one day each year, on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, the high priest was allowed to go inside the veil into the Holy of Holies. Leviticus 16 tells us that the high priest was first to slay a bull as a sin offering for himself. And that he was to bring some of the blood of that bull into the veil and sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat. Then he was to slay a goat. And that goat was to be the sin offering for the people of Israel. And he was to repeat the process of coming through the holy place inside the veil into the Holy of Holies before the Shekinah glory of God. He had smoke going up in front of his face so that he couldn't fully view the glory of God. And he would sprinkle upon the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat some of that precious blood. The point of the sprinkling of the blood is explained in Leviticus 16, verses 15 and 16. Look at the the highlighted part up here in verse 16. He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel and because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. And thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities." The point of the sprinkling of the blood was to satisfy the anger of God against the sin of His people and to cleanse the holy things associated with the presence of God from the uncleanness of His people. Please hear me. It was the blood of the sin offering applied to the mercy seat that made it the mercy seat the place in which the mercy of God was applied to the sin of His people. But the ceremony on the Day of Atonement was merely a picture, a foreshadowing of the real Day of Atonement, of that terrible and glorious day when Jesus Christ poured out His life's blood in order to bear upon Himself the wrath that was due to us because of our sin. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light and in Him there is no darkness at all. God's holiness, His perfect righteousness cannot dwell in the presence of sin. And we cannot stand before Him in our fallen condition. God hates our sin. It is a violation of His holiness. It is a denial of His character. It is a corruption of His image in us. Paul has made it very clear in Romans 1-3 through that our sin provokes God's wrath, God's righteous judgment. But now, 
But now God has provided a sin offering that satisfies His wrath against our sin once and for all. That's what the word propitiation means. The satisfaction of God's wrath. Jesus is the perfect fulfillment both of the blood of the sin offering on the Day of Atonement and of the mercy seat. His body and His blood are both the means of our atonement and the place of our atonement. That is what we remember every Sunday through our observance of the Lord's Supper. Paul goes on to say in verse 25 that all of this was to demonstrate the righteousness of God because in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. Now that gives some people some heartburn, but Paul is addressing here a very important question, a potential protest that he knew some of those to whom he was writing might have, especially Jews. As my brother Pete Smith pointed out in a great exegetical paper he wrote on this very passage, the fact that God passed over the sins previously committed might make it appear to some that He did not take the sins of people in the Old Testament seriously. And if He didn't, then He wouldn't be truly righteous. God's righteousness inherently requires the execution of His justice against sin and evil. The outpouring of His, his harsh judgment. A God who turns a blind eye to sin, especially to the sins of His own people, is not a just or righteous God. In fact, He would be a participant in their sin. But God didn't turn a blind eye to any man's sin. Paul says, in the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed for the demonstration, I say, of His righteousness at the present time. When Paul says, that he passed over the sins previously committed, he clearly does not mean that God never executes judgment against those who sinned before Jesus died on the cross. He means that God withheld executing His eternal judgment against sinners for a time until the propitiation through Christ was accomplished. Now, again, hear me when I say this, please. For us who believe in Jesus Christ, the propitiation in Jesus' blood is the execution of God's eternal judgment against our sin. And that applies to believers who lived both before the cross and since the cross. God withheld His eternal judgment against sinners before the cross so that He might execute that eternal judgment at the cross. And the eternal judgment against those who reject the sacrifice of Jesus Christ is yet future. Indeed, according to the book of Revelation, the great white throne judgment of Christ against all whose names have not been written in the Lamb's book of life will be the very last event that occurs before the ushering in of the new heavens and the new earth in which the redeemed of God will stand blameless in the presence of God. Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15. So there's a very real sense in which the forbearance of God is still in effect for a time. Peter talks about the same thing in 2 Peter 3. The atonement of Jesus Christ for sin once and for all 
is a timeless event. The sins committed by those who came to faith in God before the cross added to the agony of Jesus on the cross just as do the sins that you and I commit every day. There is only one payment for sin. There is only one redemption. The redemption which is in Christ Jesus. There is and ever will be only one provision for the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin, and that is the propitiation in the blood of Jesus Christ that applies to our sins when we come to believe in Him as our one and only Savior. In verse 26, Paul gets to the so that clause, the result or outcome of this new manifestation of the righteousness of God in Jesus Christ. And that outcome is that God is at the same time just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Now those, again, are very powerful words. When I read this amazing verse, my mind always goes to Romans 8, verses 31 to 34. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him freely give us all things? Listen to this. Who will bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is He who died. Yes, rather, who was raised. Who is at the right hand of God who also intercedes for us. <laughs> the only one who is unstained by sin and who can be called truly righteous. The only one who can rightly bring a charge against us. The only one who has both the right and the power to condemn us is the very one who justifies us freely as a gift, who cleanses us from all our unrighteousness and makes us to stand spotless and blameless in His presence, His holy presence, forever. But beloved, this is exceedingly important. God doesn't accomplish our justification at the expense of His own justness. He is just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus, and He is both at the same time. He accomplishes our justification by pouring out His wrathful judgment on His only Son in our place. If only we could comprehend both the righteousness and the loving kindness of God. We don't know what it means to be both fiercely just, and fiercely loving at the same time. But at the cross, God was both because He is always both. He will never deny His own perfection either of righteousness or of love, either of holiness or of mercy. And so at the cross of Jesus, God poured out His wrath on His own Son in order that we who believe in Him might be spared that wrath. In the great hymn by Isaac Watts that was sung this morning, and I didn't plan that, but I was thankful for it. 
when I survey the wondrous cross, we find this verse. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet or thorns compose so rich a crown? Sorrow, because He bore upon Himself that day the unimaginable fury of God against all of our sin for all time. Love, because He did so knowing that He was in that same day purchasing for us perfect and eternal fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. 1 John 4.10, John the Apostle says, In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. In 2 Corinthians 5.21, Paul says, He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become righteous? No. That we might become the righteousness of God in Him. If you can't get your hands around the magnitude of that, join the club. But if because you cannot comprehend how God could do it that way, you choose to deny that He did, then your eternity depends on your willingness to cast away your arrogance and to humbly trust in that which God declares to be true. If God's sacrifice of His only Son in your place doesn't comply with your logic about how either God's justice or God's love should work, then may your logic be damned in order that your soul may be saved. For any here who have not yet trusted in Jesus Christ alone as the one whose sacrifice of Himself makes you right with God. I want to share the words of a Scottish missionary, Robert Murray McChain from the 18th century, who died at age 29 after laying down his life to bring the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who had no other way to hear of it. He said, if I could promise you that the gospel door would stand open for a hundred years, still it would be the part of true wisdom to enter it now. Or if I could say for 50 or 20 or 10 years, it would still be the part of wisdom to enter in. But I cannot say for one year, nor for one month, nor for one day. All I can say is that Christ is now the door. Today, There is a way of pardon and eternal life open before you. Tomorrow it may be closed forever. For you who believe in Jesus Christ, this passage is as critical for you and me right now as it ever was. (laughs) The first preacher whose teaching I sat under when I was a baby Christian almost 40 years ago was a guy named Bill Perkins. He goes by Randy now. Uh, He was a baby preacher at that point. He was fresh out of seminary. And he was good. And he's still good. When one of the men in our church asked him one day why he always included the Gospel in his sermons even though he was preaching mostly to Christians, 
He said the Gospel is both the milk and the meat of the Word of God. And I couldn't agree more. If you ever tire of hearing the things that we've encountered in this passage today, then my brother or sister, there's something wrong with your spiritual ears and your spiritual eyes. The ramifications of that which Paul declares in these verses are life-transforming in every respect. One of the hymns we sang this morning. Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. God has given us a free gift, but you know what? That gift gives Him an absolute claim over our lives. Not because we're in this to repay Him. That would never happen. But because all that we possess that matters comes from that gift. Nothing else matters. The simple message that God presents here defines our lives, our identity, our mission, our reason for existence. The knowledge that we, like all men, deserve eternal condemnation, but that God has redeemed us and called us out of darkness into His marvelous light compels us to proclaim His excellencies and to share the message of salvation with the whole world. And the knowledge that our redemption is entirely God's doing and none of ours gives us unwavering confidence that we can't lose it. (laughs) We cannot lose that which God has given to us in His Son. Jesus said in John 6, 39 and 40, This is the will of Him who sent me that of all that He has given me, I will lose nothing, but will raise it all up on the last day. And then in a parallel statement, he says, and this is the will of of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him, and I've forgotten the exact words now, but he says that they will be raised up on the last day. Forgive me, I learned that 40 years ago. The knowledge that it is God's own righteousness that has been given to us takes our eyes completely off ourselves and fixes them on Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. When I was working on this message, I spent a bit of time looking at, uh, looking for a good image on the internet of a balance scale. I found a couple, but I'm not using them and I'll tell you why. I was going to say that unless our righteousness exactly matches God's and thereby balances the scale, uh, that, that we are condemned. And then I was going to say that God's the one who causes our righteousness to match up to His. <laughs> but God quickly made it crystal clear to me that that illustration utterly misses the point. God throws the scale out because it's irrelevant. He makes no effort at all to compare our righteousness to His because such a comparison could never be anything but futile. He doesn't make us righteous. He gives us His righteousness. If you are the redeemed of God, you can quit thinking about yourself and how you measure up because such such thinking is completely pointless. You can cease from your works because they mean nothing to God. 
And you can enter at once into both the rest and the works of God. It's all about Him. It is not one bit about you. You want to be useful for God's eternal purposes? Then honor Him as God and give thanks. Get to know Him better through His Word. Abide in His presence. You don't produce fruit by trying to produce fruit. You produce fruit by abiding in the vine. He is already at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasure. So quit making the Christian life a big burden. (laughs) That doesn't honor God. It dishonors God. The work He intends to do through you for His purposes is His work just as surely as the righteousness that makes you stand in His presence is His righteousness. So keep your eyes off yourself and on Him. That is the Christian life. Loving Father, You know that I feel utterly inadequate to do justice to this amazing passage. But Father, this passage stands on its own, just as does all of Your Word. These words that You have declared to us are astounding. They are earth-shattering. They are life-transforming. They are life-giving. Father, may we not take them lightly. May we who belong to You through faith in Jesus Christ let these words be our grid for interpreting everything that we see and for knowing what we must do. Teach us what it means, Father, for Christ to live in us and for Your righteousness to be manifested through these earthen vessels. For any here, Lord, who came this morning not knowing how they would spend eternity or not believing the message that they may have heard before, Lord, our prayer as as believers for those individuals is that they may humble themselves before You and trust in that which You have made known. Take You at Your Word and believe in the the sacrificial work of Jesus Christ in their place on the cross as the one and only means to stand righteous in your eyes. We pray all these things, Lord, in Jesus' precious name. Amen.